Dear Father, uh, I am uh, thankful for the gift that you've given me to teach and the opportunity to do it. And Father, I'm especially thankful uh, and reminded of this today that uh, you've made it possible to continue in the way that we are now even though uh, there is a reason not to meet, even though it's hard for us to get together as a body and under other circumstances, perhaps the word of God would have been silenced, at least for a time. But thank you, Father, that you have brought to bear the technology, the inventions of, of humanity that you inspired so that at a day like this, you could still get your word out. Uh, just a reminder to us, Father, that uh, whatever means you might use, you always have the power to bring your word to us. And it is a privilege to share this with others to be a part of that process. Thank you for this church that makes the word of God a priority. Thank you for our congregation, wherever they are right now, Father, as they listen and watch. We thank you, Father, for their diligence in the pursuit of your word. For by it, Father, you are glorified in the changes that it affects in our hearts and in the way it calls us to serve you in better ways. Uh, Father, as we study today again, we open up the word with an expectation, an expectation that you're teaching us that you're presenting something here we need to know. And so I ask, Father, our hearts are prepared with that attitude, that this isn't casual, this isn't ritual, it is not routine, it is uh, divinely appointed. And because of that, Father, I want our hearts to be in total engagement with what you do here today. And I ask that you would help us uh, take away distractions and uh, to be fully concerned with what we hear. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I said, uh, today we're gonna conclude something that we've been working on now for a little while, the seven woes that Jesus pronounces against the Pharisees in chapter 23 of Matthew. And I'm gonna dispense with a long review today. I think we've gone through this enough now. We know what we're doing. Let's just dive back in. I wanna start again where we left off in Jesus' fifth woe spoken against these men. That begins in verse 25. So let's turn to Matthew 23, verse 25. I'll read there. Jesus says to those men, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Once again, Jesus calls these men hypocrites. Now last week we saw him condemning them as false teachers, that is, they selectively obeyed or considered the word of God, uh, and that made them false teachers. You know, when the Bible uses the term false teacher, it's not merely referring to the false things that these men teach. After all, anyone can teach something false from time to time. That by itself does not make a person a false teacher. No, the Bible uses the word false not so much to describe what they teach, but to describe the men themselves. They are false, that's the issue. Someone who is false because they are not who they claim to be. And that's why the Pharisees are being called hypocrites by Jesus over and over again in this passage. It's because they falsely claimed things. They, they claimed to know the Bible. They claimed to have spiritual insight. They portrayed themselves as godly and pious. And they convinced an entire generation of Israel that they were the experts on God and therefore, they were the most qualified to teach the people of Israel about how to please God. But in reality, those guys were far from God. They didn't possess what they claimed to offer others. 
They were unbelievers, and that's the key element, the key characteristic of a false teacher according to Scripture. Second Peter chapter two gives us this, that a false teacher is false because they are not of God. They don't know God, they are not believers, as we would say, and so they're speaking about things that they have no hope to understand themselves. And that's what made these men so dangerous in their day. People are naturally attracted, religious people that is, are naturally attracted to the outward piety of people who practice religion in a zealous way. They seem to know what they're doing. And so when you encounter somebody who is of this style, like a Pharisee, you tend to drop your guard. You, you tend to assume that, well, anything that person would tell me must be correct. I mean, after all, look at them. That outward appearance convinces you that they are genuine and they're trustworthy and inside they are actually very different. So in this fifth woe, which we just read, Jesus condemns these men for what I'm calling selective piety. That is, they cared only for the outward appearance, they ignored the inward reality of their character. And to make the point, he uses this very simple but very effective illustration of dirty dishes to describe these guys. Now in verse 25, Jesus says these men were only cleaning the outside of their dishes, leaving the inside dirty. And he's referring to the way Pharisaic Judaism as a religion placed importance only on the external behaviors, the the things you do rather than who you truly are. That system of religion put virtually no importance on inward character, on the quality of your inward godliness. And so you could have this, this kind of strange situation in which you have Pharisees who were scrupulous about their rituals, the external things they did, and at the same time, they gave absolutely no attention to their inner sin, to their inner nature. So I want you to imagine sitting down to eat at a restaurant, and I realize this is a distant memory for most of us right now, but imagine in that scenario you have a waiter who comes to your table, and as he sets your table, you notice at first glance that all the dishes look spotless. But then as you inspect them a little more closely, you start to notice that the inside of your cup is absolutely filthy, it's never been cleaned. And so naturally you complain to the waiter and you say, my dishes are not clean. Now, how would you react if the waiter then turned to you and said, oh no, no, look, the outside is perfectly clean, you don't need to worry about the inside. (laughs) You, You know, you would say to that person, look, I want both the inside and the outside of my dishes to be clean. And in fact, if you had to choose just one of those, which one would you choose? You would choose that the inside would be clean more so than the outside, right? Well, Jesus' point to the Pharisees is essentially that, that they were selective in what they cleaned, that is, in their piety. They chose to focus only on the outside of the cup, so to speak, claiming that cleaning the outside of their person, of their nature, was good enough, like the waiter saying the outside of the cup being clean was good enough. And to make matters worse, they picked the wrong side, just like the waiter. And Jesus compares the cleaning of the outside of dishes to ritualistic traditions and the the various external practices of Pharisaic Judaism. Pharisaic Judaism, as you probably remember now, is an exercise in making the outside of a person, and that of course means the way they live, the outside appearance of the person, making that as clean as possible, speaking ritually. And so from their clothing, to their public prayers, to how and what they ate. Uh, Everything they did, all those rituals, were a means of pursuing godliness in their minds. 
They would fuss over how they wore their hair and their beard or how many times they washed their hands before a meal and so on. They had all these rules that were designed to affect the outside of the person. And they did these things in belief that those rituals had the power to make them acceptable to God. They actually believed that that scrupulous devotion to external rituals made them inwardly pleasing to God. And they did it without any thought about whether it was actually working or not. They just took it for granted. And Jesus says the truth was inside those men was robbery and self-indulgence, he says. Now robbery, just to define it, is forcibly taking something, stealing something from someone else in a show of force. And self-indulgence is obeying your own lusts, doing what your flesh would like. And last week we learned how these men were lovers of money and how they used their religious position to steal from people, even taking houses from widows, we were told. And that's the robbery and the self-indulgence that Jesus is talking about here. They have a corrupt, sinful character, and it comes out of them in those ways. So if it were possible for us to look at the hearts of these men, spiritually speaking, you would see effectively a cup filled with moldy filth. And they, if you had pointed that out to them, they would have done what the waiter did. They would have taken their cup and turned it over, so to speak, and they would have said, oh yeah, but look, look how clean the outside of this cup is. And that's why Jesus condemned these men, because they were experts in religious rituals and yet cared nothing about inward character because they assumed one was a means to the other. And of course, this kind of hypocrisy is not unique to Pharisees. I mean, they were the, the, the poster children of it in their day, certainly. But anyone can do this. Christians can do this. Christians, unfortunately, do this all the time. We put on acts in front of other people. We can pretend to be better than we truly are. Uh, we can try to do it to gain approval or just to feel better about ourselves. And I suspect the day of the week we tend to do this most often is Sunday morning. And because we have the Holy Spirit living inside us, we tend to be aware of these games. Even as we play them, there's a part of us inside that knows eh, this is not real. We know God knows our true self, and we know that he will judge us for our inside as much as our outside, if not more. And so as we play a game of hypocrisy with other people, we'll tend to feel some guilt about it, some conviction about it. And hopefully, that conviction will eventually lead us to drop the pretense and to submit to the Spirit so that we actually become the person that we're pretending to be. But the Pharisees, being unbelievers, they lived without that conviction. They actually went through this pretend life of religious ritual, not as an act, so to speak, not as something that they knew was false, but as their only real understanding of religion and of what it means to be devoted to God. For them, it was the equivalent of of internal righteousness. And they truly believed that if you practice the rituals and you do them reliably and do them well, then you will be more holy and more righteous before God. It's kind of like thinking this. It's like thinking that if you meow or bark, it will turn you into a cat or a dog that by mimicking the behaviors, the internals will follow. And as silly as that sounds, that's exactly what all false religion is trying to do. 
using some kind of external ritual. Now, the rituals will vary, of course, from one religion to the next, but they all have the same purpose. Adopt the rituals and you become something better. You please God, whatever version of God you're thinking about. And in a nutshell, that's the difference between ritual and relationship. Before you have a true relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, religion for you will be nothing more than ritual because ritual is all you have when you don't have relationship. But religious rituals have no power at all. They have no power to change the inside of anyone. No more than making barking sounds will turn you into a dog does repeating religious ritual turn you into somebody holy and pious and pleasing to God. The only way that the inside of a person changes, spiritually speaking, is by a work done by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Titus, in writing to Titus in chapter three, verse four, he says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, quote righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So as Paul explains, because of the kindness and mercy of God, we were saved. Not because we accomplished some kind of religious ritual which we thought was making us righteous, but because he renewed us through the Holy Spirit given to us by our faith in Jesus Christ. Being born again is the way it's described in John chapter three. It's a reference to that inward cleansing. Literally speaking, by faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit who cleanses the inside of your cup. He makes the inside of us spiritually clean. That's a work that only God can do on the inside of a human being. But here's the best part, perhaps. After that inward cleansing happens, Paul says, then a renewal process begins inside us also done by the Holy Spirit. And that renewing process, which the Bible calls sanctification, it leads that inward cleanliness to move outward. So that as Jesus says, clean the inside of the cup and you'll get the outside clean also. Because the righteousness that God puts in us by his spirit will show itself over time through changes in our behavior. By the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the person you have become on the inside by virtue of that renewing will start to show itself over time in changes to the way you think and speak and act. That process of renewing you is the inside of you coming out over time. And that is the power of a true relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you notice, it's the complete opposite of what external ritualistic religion claims to be able to do. Those who practice that kind of religion, they're hoping that by adopting outside behaviors, they will work inwardly to change who you are, and that's just not how it happens. It's, un, it's a false way of thinking. The truth is exactly the opposite, which is so often the case when it comes to the Bible, that you have to first be changed on the inside so that God will work that change outwardly over time. It's the cleaning of the outside of the cup versus the cleaning of the inside of the cup. And let me suggest to you how powerful that analogy is when you think about it in literal terms. I defy you to take a cup that is dirty on the inside and the outside 
And can you clean the inside of that cup and not have some of that water that you're using flow over the top of the cup and down the sides and wash some of the outside as well? It's almost impossible to imagine how you could clean the inside without affecting the outside in some way. But you can clean the outside without touching the inside. All you have to do is turn it over and put it under the water. And the inside will be no different, but the outside will be clean. And that's the difference. That is, the Lord is asking us to be cleansed inside so that then it can affect, it can overflow and change the outside. But for those who think they can do it in their own power and turn that cup upside down, so to speak, they'll never reach the inside. It's impossible. And so what these men did was promote a selective approach to piety, selective in the sense that they only worried about the outside of themselves, and as a result, they adopted ritual and not relationship, and Jesus condemns them for it in the fifth woe, which is now leading us into the sixth woe, Matthew 23, verse 27. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. All right, now the sixth woe sounds an awful lot like the fifth one, as you might imagine, and that's because Jesus uses another uh, illustration of outward versus inward, outward appearance versus inward reality. But the point he's making in this sixth woe And the condemnation he's issuing is for something entirely different than the fifth woe. It's a different problem here. The problem in the sixth woe is how the Pharisees contributed to a lack of righteousness in others. Jesus calls these men whitewashed tombs, perfectly clean and attractively painted, and yet inside, like all graves, they're full of dead men's bones, he said. Now, to understand what he's really getting at here and how this uh, establishes a different critique than the fifth one, we first have to understand some unique practices of Judaism in that day, which is what Jesus is uh, alluding to here. Every year at Passover in Jesus' day, you'd find thousands, maybe even millions of Jewish pilgrims coming into the city of Jerusalem from all over, walking from every direction into the city. And as they came walking into the city, you'd find this little city, it's not a very big town in Jesus' day, and there was no way that the city could accommodate thousands and millions of visitors. There was no room for them. And so inevitably, these pilgrims would end up sleeping on the neighboring hillsides uh, in the little towns that dotted the region around Jerusalem. Now, in the law of Moses, a Jew could be barred from participating in the Passover if that person became unclean, ritually unclean, in the days before the Passover. For example, in Numbers 19.16, We're told that if a Jew comes into contact with a grave, a tomb of any kind, then that person is considered unclean for the next seven days. And so if a Jew were to come into contact with a grave in the days before Passover, they would be ineligible to participate in the Passover. And because the hillsides all around Jerusalem were covered with tomb sites and graves uh, up and around the hills, it led to this interesting practice in Jesus' day. It became customary in the weeks leading up to Passover for Jews to go out into the hillsides around the city of Jerusalem and paint all of the graves they could find in a fresh coat of white paint. Now, not only did it make the graves look more attractive, 
but its main purpose was that it made them easier to spot. And so, traveling pilgrims could avoid those graves by seeing them more clearly and avoid stumbling over them and being disqualified from participating in the Passover that they were coming to enjoy. And that's the scenario that Jesus is talking about or referring to here as he talks about the Pharisees. He says, they are like those whitewashed tombs right before a Passover. And they have whitewashed themselves in a sense, that is they've made themselves look attractive on the outside, same thing we just talked about. They play the part of being pious and they do it all very well so they look very attractive but yet no one really could tell that if you could have seen inside them, they were like a grave. They were full of dead things, full of hypocrisy, full of lawlessness. But here's the real issue, and here's the distinction between this woe and the fifth one before it. The problem was that attractive exterior that the Pharisees created would lead other people to look to them for religious guidance. And as the people of Israel came to the Pharisees for that guidance, they were unknowingly walking on graves, so to speak. That is, the people of Israel were being defiled by their coming to the Pharisees because they thought the Pharisees had something they needed. The Pharisees would lead the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, to become unclean in the sense that they led people away from the truth of God. And by defiling the people of Israel in that way, the Pharisees disqualified the nation from participating in the true Passover. Remember when all this is happening? We're just barely two days away from Passover. And Jesus, in this year, is gonna fulfill the Passover in its full sense. He is going to be the Passover lamb. He's gonna put himself up on a cross to die for the sins of Israel and for the world. And as the Passover is being fulfilled in that year, for that generation of Israel, that generation is gonna miss it. They are going to be prevented from participating in the fulfillment of the Passover, that is, in believing in their Messiah. Why? Because they have stumbled over, so to speak, the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees, and they've been disqualified as a result. And so the sixth woe spoken against the Pharisees is for their defiling influence on the nation of Israel, causing them to miss their Messiah at Passover. They were the tombs that defiled the nation. Yet on the outside, they were pretty and white. They were actually, in a kind of ironic sense, made attractive to the people, unlike the way it's supposed to work, where the whitewashed tombs warn you to stay away. Now, before we move to the final woe, the seventh woe, let's reflect for just a moment on the two that we've now come through, the fifth and the sixth woes. You have the first of those emphasizing ritual over relationship, and they were condemned for that. And now you have this uh, sixth woe of allowing hypocrisy to become a stumbling block for others, and they were condemned for that. And I think it's easy to see how we can fall into the footsteps of these men in our own way, that is Christians falling prey to substituting ritual for relationship or by becoming a negative influence on another person's walk with God. These are not hard to understand or imagine. I think I could preach a, a month of Sundays on all of these, on both of these topics. But let's just give a moment's thought to a couple of things. First, you should ask yourself, I think every Christian should be asking this of themselves continually at all times in their life. Are we letting ritual take us the place of relationship in our walk with Jesus? Is it a complement to your relationship or 
is it a way to avoid the relationship? You know, the Christian church has very few prescribed rituals in the New Testament. In fact, I can only think of a handful that you would find in the Bible. Uh, Baptism, communion, the regular gathering, and the laying on of hands. Those are the only rituals that I can think of that are prescribed in the New Testament. And yet over the centuries, of course, men have added, men and women have added countless more rituals and made them a part of the traditions of the church. And you know, ritual by itself is not wrong, it's not a bad thing necessarily, but it can become a crutch. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus by faith, uh, and yet you want to appear to have one, you know, you want to fit in in some sense, well, what you do then is you adopt empty rituals in place of that genuine relationship. And probably more than a few of us know people like this in our family or among our circle of friends, people we suspect are going through the motions, but they don't really understand what it's about. Or maybe we have a faith in Jesus, maybe we are saved, that is, but we don't wanna spend the time or the energy to invest in that relationship. So we would rather just repeat a ritual of showing up every week into a building, sing, you know, kneel, shake hands, do what they tell you to do and go home, and then the other six days of the week we don't give any thought to who we are in, in Christ. We'd rather do all of that than invest the time required in disciplines of prayer and study and following the Lord, frankly, in, in obeying his commands and listening to his instruction. You know, that takes effort. That takes some investment of time, and it certainly requires a denial of self repeatedly. And it's hard work, hard in the sense that it can be hard to discipline the flesh. But if you are a Christian who is living out ritual in place of that hard work or in place of that devotion to Jesus, uh, then I suspect if you're a Christian, you know you're faking it. I suspect the the conviction's been there. I, I don't think you're fooling yourself. And if you feel that hypocrisy, you know, if, if you have just assumed, well, this is what everyone else is doing too. We're all just kind of faking it. You know, we mouth the words to the worship. We kind of stand around and do the things they tell us to do, but, you know, we all get it. It's just part of the ritual. If you think that's what everyone thinks, let me tell you, that's not what everyone thinks. Maybe some do, certainly, but not everyone. There are people around you who know the real difference, who are investing in a relationship with Jesus, and it's paying dividends for them in their walk and in their life. It's not a game. And you can, get, you can get to that same place. You, you can find out what you're missing. You just have to make the priority of relationship over ritual and start thinking more deeply about what it means to be saved by the grace of God. Or maybe you don't know Jesus, as I said earlier. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe you need to get right with God, as they say, through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your situation is. But I can tell you this. If your dominant thought when it comes to following Jesus, being a Christian, going to church, when you're, if your dominant thought about those things is ritual, you don't get it. If your dominant thought, though, is one of relationship, I know God, he knows me, and there's something building there, and the ritual is just sort of the, the window dressing for what it means to be a Christian, well, then you do get it. And the difference between those two is everything. For the Pharisees, it was enough reason for condemnation. That's the first thing I would say. And then the second thing I would say is if you go on practicing ritual instead of relationship, you also run the risk of kind of doing the sixth woe, doing the thing that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for in the sixth woe, which was causing others to stumble. You know, if you see somebody who's really good at ritual in the church, 
They are just always praying. They are just always sitting and standing at the right time. They're in every service. You know, I like used to say that you know, anytime the doors were open, the, the families would be at church. That was the style of, of attending before. You know, you were always there. You're always doing the right things. If that to you is what it appears to be to be in relationship, and if ritual is simply your guide or your model, then you may be at risk of either being a whitewashed tomb or following one. Because being attracted to people because of their ritualistic practices is not the point. I mean, we certainly model ourselves after what we see others doing at times, and that can be healthy. But you don't want to model yourself after hypocrisy. And the way you'll know the difference, of course, is in the character of the person, in the way they treat their family, in the way they do their job, in the way they handle their finances, in all that goes with their life, do you see reflected in that the fruit of the ritual, of what they do externally? If the two aren't matched, then you may have picked the wrong example, and if that's who you are, then you're being a bad example. Scripture indicates that that's actually the greater sin, that It should give us incentive not only to put hypocrisy aside for our own sake, but for the sake of those who might model their lives on our style of Christianity. We want to be those who are seeking authentic relationships so that we model that more than anything. All right, well, let's move on. We have the seventh woe still to finish, and I don't want to miss that today. So let's go to verse 29. And as we look at the seventh and the last of these woes, it'll give us an opportunity to put them all together. Verse 29, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Well, once again, Jesus draws here upon a Jewish practice of the day, so we need to understand that history if we're to get the full sense of what he's saying here. And the history involves tombs, and he makes a comparison between the tombs of Old Testament prophets and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So back in the time of the Old Testament, and all of the books we have of the Old Testament, you see prophet after prophet after prophet who came to Israel at various points in their history during times of disobedience, generally, and they came with a message from God to the people of Israel to repent or to heed the word of the Lord. And because that was their ministry, prophets, generally speaking, were not uh, popular people. In fact, being a prophet to Israel was about as thankless and dangerous a job as you could possibly have. They were almost always killed by those they they came to serve. Uh, The writer of Hebrews kind of gives us an overview of the fate of the prophets when he writes this. It's in Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 32. He says, speaking about the saints of old, these prophets we're talking about, the writer says, what more shall we say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then listen to how he describes the prophets. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From, all right, now that all sounds great, right? From weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. All that sounds great. Women received back their dead by resurrection. 
And then it changes, and he says, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Well, they certainly achieved some powerful things, as the writer said at the beginning, but they were mistreated in some horrible ways as well. They were universally hated. They were martyred for bringing the truth to Israel. And when you read a a summary like that, you get a sense that uh, it was a pretty difficult recruiting pitch for God to raise up the next prophet. It's probably why he didn't ask for volunteers. Uh, He would appoint men. And it also explains, by the way, why someone like Jonah would run away from the job. But the Pharisees, for their part, declared, oh, no, 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 if we had been there, if we had been alive in those days, that's not what we would have done. We would have defended the prophets. We would have been against the people in those things. Some of the Pharisees had actually gone about designating the places in Israel where the tombs of these ancient prophets were supposedly uh, located. You know, they'd say, oh, this is the burial location of Isaiah or whatever. I'm sure some of those burial locations were accurate while others were not, but the point is this. They would make a show of honoring the memory of these men by honoring their grave sites, building these fabulous monuments on the location where they were supposedly buried. Some of them you can still see in Israel today. And they said, this is proof that we would have known to be on the prophet's side. We, that in other words, they would have had the insight to change history had they had the opportunity to do so. But Jesus says in verse 31 that by making such claims now, these men were actually testifying against themselves by acknowledging they are the responsible parties for what Israel does today. In other words, these men were now in a position to direct the people concerning the prophets of their day. So if they're so quick to say they would have known better concerning the older prophets, well, then they can prove that they're right by showing the insight concerning their present-day prophets. And who were the present-day prophets? Well, ironically, the present-day prophets of the Pharisees' time were the very ones that the prior prophets foretold. You know, Isaiah was the one who said there would be a voice crying in the wilderness to make crooked ways straight for the coming of the Lord, referring, of course, to John the Baptist. And Isaiah is also the one who said that the the root of Jesse would come and one day be Messiah, speaking, of course, of Jesus. So the people of Israel hated Isaiah and eventually killed him, and now you have the Pharisees saying, oh, we wouldn't have done that. Meanwhile, what are they doing? They're persecuting John the Baptist and Jesus. And so even as they publicly embrace the memory of the martyred prophets, they're leading the nation in their day to reject their own Messiah. And Jesus says that's the absolute worst kind of hypocrisy, and he condemns them for it. He says in verses 32 and 33, he says, they are filling up the measure of their own guilt, that is the guilt of their fathers, which they now have taken upon themselves. That is, they are doing worse than their fathers did. That's what he's saying. Their guilt exceeded those who killed the prophets because they're not only killing prophets, they're killing the Messiah himself. So the seventh woe involves Pharisees 
thinking themselves righteous and better than the people when in reality they were the worst kind of unrighteousness. Now this sin of self-righteousness in their case, it's not just a matter of pride. It wasn't just the fact that they saw themselves improperly in this way. It's also the way they inoculate themselves from the reach of God's mercy. Look, if you don't believe you're a sinner, if you don't think you're in need of saving, well then when the Messiah shows up offering forgiveness, you won't have any need for it. If you don't think that you are due hell, you're not looking for a solution to find heaven. And that's the problem with these guys. That's the basic problem with self-righteousness. It's at the, ish, it's at the heart of the seventh woe here, this issue that these men did not see themselves honestly They were self-deceived, and as a result, they couldn't see Jesus honestly either. They were blind to their own predicament, and they were blind to who the Messiah was. Remember, the gospel came as a pronouncement of repent and believe. You gotta repent, you gotta know you're not okay, okay the way you are. Things need to change. You have a problem that needs to be solved. But these guys had a different expectation. They truly believed that when the Messiah came, whenever that happened, that he would go to the Pharisees first and he would praise them as if to say, man, I'm glad I've got at least somebody here that knows how to do this right. I am here to save Israel and thankfully you're here with me, Pharisees. They expected that kind of welcome from the Messiah because in their mind, they were the epitome of righteousness. So when Jesus came and honored prostitutes and tax collectors and yet criticized them as hypocrites, it was the exact opposite of what they expected It led them to judge Jesus as not being Messiah and they wanted to condemn him. And Jesus dismisses all that hypocrisy here and says they are the fraud. And notice he repeatedly calls them blind guides. And here's the thing he's talking about. They're blind most of all to their own sin. As Jesus says in John's gospel, John chapter nine, he said to the Pharisees in that gospel, because they said to themselves they see, meaning that they had spiritual insight and were already righteous. He said, because you say that, I'm gonna leave you in your blindness. All right, so that's the seventh woe. Uh, Believing yourself more righteous than you truly are. In fact, not recognizing you are wholly sinful. Now let's look at the end of this section by looking back on all seven of these woes. And you may remember when I introduced this section earlier in this chapter a few weeks ago, I said, that when you look at all seven, they're actually organized as a chiasm. And a chiasm is a literary structure that you commonly find in the Bible. It's all over the place from Genesis to Revelation. And a chiasm is an arrangement of ideas. Uh, You take the thoughts you're going to lay out and you arrange them in a pattern that helps the reader follow the logic, follow the development of the argument or the development of a story. And in this particular chapter, there are seven points, seven woes, and so these woes are set up in a chiasm. And the way a chiasm works is you pair up the first and the last and the next to last and the next to first or whatever, you pair them up in thought, in idea. I'm gonna show you a couple of uh, graphs here to kind of make this a little easier to understand. Let's look at all seven woes together. The first of those is believing a gospel of works. That's what we saw in the first woe. These Pharisees believed in their Pharisaic system would save them. Secondly, they promoted a religion of works, which was the second way that they were condemned. Then they used their religious ritual for personal gain. And then he condemned them in number four for selective obedience to the word of God. 
In number five, he condemned them for emphasizing ritual over religion, that's what we just, or over relationship, that's what we just looked at. Number six, making others unrighteous by their unholy influence, and then lastly, believing themselves to be righteous when they were not. Now, I've arranged these, as you notice, in this little design, because that's how achaism works. In achaism, the first and the last of those thoughts are connected, and you can see as we represent that here, you have a line representing, there you go, first and second, first and last, second and sixth, third and fifth. Now look at the content of each one. The first one was believing a gospel of works. The last one is believing themselves righteous. You see how those two thoughts are related. In number two and number six, they promoted a religion of works. Number six, they were making others unrighteous. That is in the number two, they were, they were uh, converting others to their system. And number six, By that conversion, they were making others unrighteous, and so on. You can see how in the pairing up of these ideas, there's a reinforcement of them. Now, as you look at this design, you can draw an X right through the middle of it, and that's where it gets its name. A chi, the letter chi in the Greek alphabet, is the letter in the shape of an X. So these come to be known as chiasms because as a shape, it looks a little bit like the letter from the Greek alphabet. Now, why is this in the Bible? What's the point of all of this? Well, uh, two, two things, first of all. Uh, in having this pairing up that we just talked about, you get a chance to appreciate that the interpretation of the first one and the last one need to pair up, and the interpretation of the second and the sixth one. So in other words, if you're having some doubts about your interpretation, you should see your interpretation confirmed by noticing whether it's paralleled or not. And if they're not paralleling well, then your interpretation is not quite right. But secondly, and probably most importantly, a chiasm's purpose is in directing you to the point. If you notice in this chiasm, and in all chiasms, there is one point that is unpaired, and it lies at the very middle. In this case, it's number four. And as they like to say, the point of a chiasm is the point. That is, it's the place in the design where it reverses back out. And it draws your attention to that point. So in this chiasm, the main point, the main thought of what Jesus is teaching is found in the fourth woe. The fourth woe was against the Pharisees' selective obedience to the word of God. That, if you remember, that's the one when he says they chose to tithe on mint and herbs and so on, but they ignored the weightier aspects of the law like justice and mercy. So they were selectively determining which parts of the law they would follow and which parts of the law they would ignore. And look, friends, when you start picking and choosing what you're gonna follow in the word of God, you inevitably do something called cherry picking. Now, uh, cherry picking is a way of saying you select only the things you like. Imagine picking fruit off of a tree. They're all there in front of you, but which ones do you pick? You pick the ones that look best. You don't pick the ones that look bad to you. And cherry picking in the Bible means going into the Bible and looking for the rules, the commandments, the direction that you prefer and adopting those wholeheartedly, but then conveniently ignoring anything the Bible says which does not fit with your preconceived notions or your personal desires. So if the Bible says that there's something we can't do or there is something we should do, We just ignore those rules if they don't fit our liking. But I like to think of it this way. It's like we pick the rules we like and we do those rules extra hard 
to make up for the ones that we're choosing to ignore. It's kind of a subconscious process. And it's a game. It's just a game. It's a game of hypocrisy. It's living in rebellion to God's authority, but pretending you're not by how you pick certain things to show off with. No one obeys the Bible perfectly, of course. None of us can. But that's not the concern that Jesus had here in the fourth woe. He didn't condemn these men because they were trying to do what the Bible said and they were just failing at it. That's the common experience of all believers. No, he condemned them for ignoring the Bible when it suited them. And that's the core issue that leads to every other one of the seven woes. It's why this particular point sits at the point of the chiasm. Because how you approach the word of God will determine how you live and how you obey the Lord. If you come to the word of God sincerely with an open heart and with a desire to accept what you find when you get there, then you are truly obeying or seeking to obey. On the other hand, if you go into the Bible with this intent to manipulate what you find, to validate your life, to validate your opinion or your ways, then you're a hypocrite playing a game with God. The Pharisees were master manipulators of the word of God, and they played their game perfectly in such a way that they could ensure they had their cake and ate it too. That is to say, they could get the praise they wanted from people and the money and all the rest by being scrupulous in the things they liked, and at the same time, they could still get away with doing all the things they truly desired because those they swept under the rug. They prayed on Saturday morning, and they partied on Saturday night, as they like to say. So they pointed to the word of God when it supported what they desired and they ignored it when it didn't. And look, as you look at this from your own perspective as a Christian, there are, generally speaking, there are three ways that you can live in respect to the Bible. But only one of those three ways will bring you spiritual maturity and godliness. First, you can just ignore the Bible. And I think that's the path that, frankly, a lot of Christians choose. My analogy is you treat it like a dictionary on your bookshelf at home. You know, you take it down when you have a question, when you need a definition, when you have some problem to solve, and then when that need is over in the moment, it goes back on the shelf and it gets dusty until the next crisis. I call that a kind of Bible bingo. You know, you you play Bible Bible bingo in the sense that you just need a certain letter to complete the the problem you're in or to solve the puzzle that you're trying to solve. You know, I just need that one little element. The Bible's there, kind of like a recipe book, just kind of guides me when I need it. But the rest of the time, I'm cool without it. It's for the pastor to know the Bible. I don't need to know the Bible. Uh, If that's who you are with the Bible, you'll grow almost nothing at all in your walk with Jesus, very little, because you're not immersed in, in uh, in what God gave us for growth. I like to say it this way. The Spirit of God is the engine of change. Remember, he renews us, as we heard earlier, but the fuel for that engine is the Word of God. The second group engages in some level of study, routinely, But here's the difference. They're not searching for truth. They're searching for affirmation. This group has preconceived ideas about God and about faith. Maybe they got it from their denomination or from their pastor or from their friends or who knows how they came upon their ideas. But they bring those ideas to the process of study whenever they engage in it. And they aren't going into this study so much with the interest of having their minds changed about anything, especially if that happens to be personal correction in some area of their life. No, no, for them, the Bible just exists to confirm their views. And if they should stumble upon something that contradicts what they believe, well, they can just kind of set it aside or explain it away. 
I call this the cherry picking I referred to earlier. And what it produces is not only a lack of spiritual growth, but worse than that, it produces pride and arrogance. It puffs up the heart and it inoculates you to conviction because you've always got a reason why something doesn't apply to you or why it's wrong. Finally, there are Christians who will go at the process of studying the Bible as a lifelong pursuit. They enter into the experience expecting to change as a result. They expect God to change their mind. They expect to have to change their behaviors, and they ultimately hope it will change their hearts. And they know they're gonna be convicted. They're ready to repent when the time comes. They may not always like it, of course. It doesn't always feel good, but they expect it. And when the correction comes, they embrace it gladly because they understand it is a path to greater peace. As the writer says in Hebrews, that we don't like correction in the moment, but in time it bears this peaceful fruit of righteousness. And along the way, they also expect to be amazed and to be intrigued and yeah, maybe even to be confused at times, but they aren't worried about that because they expect to be engaged in study for the rest of their lives. And they anticipate that it's all gonna work out in time. God will do the good work that he does through his word. I call this group truth seekers because that's what they are. And they're the ones Jesus is seeking because they are the opposite of Pharisees and all those who live in a hypocritical way. How you approach the word of God is the key determining factor on who you will be in Christ because it's why God gave us the word of God, that we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what I wanna leave you with this morning, that out of what we've studied in these woes, we learn a little bit about the men who brought Jesus to the cross, we learn a lot about Pharisaic Judaism, and we certainly see a little bit of our own sin in some of these things, but maybe more than anything else, what I hope I leave you with out of this section of Matthew's Gospel is an appreciation that your approach to the word of God is all important to your walk with Jesus. Give it the time it deserves and come at it with an authentic and sincere heart, one that's open, willing to be corrected, looking to change, because if you let it do that work in your heart, you'll find that peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. And that's what this is all about as we await our Lord's return. Let's pray. Dear Father, uh, Father, give us your word in a new and better way. Help us move away from ritual and into a deeper relationship. Father, I, I'm mindful that for some who have heard this message, there's a bit of conviction potentially, conviction in how we've lived as a Christian, how we've devoted our time to the pursuit of you and your relationship with us. I pray that that conviction, Father, will do its good work for those who feel it right now. It will motivate change and will cause us to rethink what we do tomorrow and in every day to come. Perhaps others of us, Father, are feeling uh, affirmed because we believe these things and live them to our best now. But Father, don't let that turn into pride and arrogance and complacency. Help us to be renewed in those things as we've learned this today. And in all that happens out of this, whether it's a change or an affirmation, I pray, Father, it would be useful to you that we could witness to others, that we'd be a light to others, not a grave that defiles others, but something truly clean from the inside out that can lead others to know you better. That's our mission and that's our calling and we wanna do it well. So we ask for your help to do that, Father, as we always wish to be. Thank you, Father, for this day of teaching and for an opportunity to meet in this virtual way. And we pray, Father, that we regather soon in a safe 
and loving environment which we miss. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.